kids are amazing in this church. Um, love them so much. Uh, I don't really have a catchy story or anecdote um, to start my message this morning, but but here's what I want for you today. I, I just want to tell you what I want for you. I want you to walk out of here this morning with an expanded view of God. And what I mean by that is that I think that oftentimes our view of God becomes limited. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Just daily life, you know, lack of faith, uh, not really understanding who God is or, 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 or spending time with God or being here on a... So there's a variety of reasons why our view of God, our understanding of God becomes limited. And so this morning, I want your view of God to expand. I want it to grow. I want you to walk out of these doors at 11 a.m.-ish with an expanded view of God, one that is greater than what you walked in with, okay? So let's get started, shall we? Um, if you haven't so, done so already, I invite you to open up the YouVersion app. Uh, it is a great resource. You can also follow along with everything I'm going to cover today and uh, be able to just sort of take notes on there, whatever you want to do. Go there, use that. And so before we dive into our text for today, though, we are continuing in the book of Acts, um, I just want to take a minute to recap what happened last week, because what happened last week has implications for what's going to happen as we look at our text today. Keep in mind, we're reading a story, right? And so from week to week, this story is building on itself. Things are happening in a successive, comprehensive order. And so looking back helps us to inform what we're going to look at today. So here's the thing. You know, last week, if you were here, uh, we looked at that while the temple worship was happening afterwards, uh, the, the, the first followers of Jesus, the church, began to gather in the shadow of the temple. And the church began to grow or continued to grow in number and in reputation. People are coming from all over the known area, all over to the outskirts of Jerusalem to listen to the apostles preach and perform miracles. Um, even Peter, it says, is able to walk among the people and as his shadow falls on them, they are healed, that they get new life as a result of just simply being around the apostles. And we talked about that for our, what that means for ourselves last week. If you didn't see it, go on YouTube, watch it. It's worth your time. Now, if the story of Jesus and the first part of Acts tells us anything, it's that this sort of attention on the church is going to ruffle the feathers of the leading religious people in Jerusalem. It always does. No exceptions. So despite the growing popularity of the church, the power in Jerusalem still belongs to groups like the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're the religious elite. When people look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they think they got it together. If anybody knows who God is, if anybody is following God the way we should, it's those guys, right? These two groups run the show in Jerusalem and anything that threatens their power and their prestige, well, it's going to need to be dealt with. And that is a common thread that happens all the way back to when Jesus begins his ministry and all the way to the end of Acts. So we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 5 because the, what the church is doing in the shadow of the temple is ruffling the feathers of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests and his council again, and this is what happens starting in verse 17. Luke, who is the author of Acts, writes this. The high priest and his officials, who were the Sadducees, were filled 
with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and they put them in public jail. Now, here's the thing. I mentioned this last week, but the expectation was that God's work in the first century in Jerusalem, healing, worship, and forgiveness, all of that was to happen inside the temple. That's where you went to meet with God. But it's now evident that the greatest amount of healing and worship and forgiveness and new life is not happening inside the temple, but it's actually happening outside the temple in the shadow of that very building. And so as a result, the high priest who runs the temple, by the way, I mean, he, he is in control of what's going on in the temple and its courts, and his officials, these Sadducees, these leading teachers and religious leaders, they realize that they're becoming more and more irrelevant to those who follow Jesus. And the Sadducees are realizing that the attention is no longer on them and their output and their ability to perform and their teaching, but instead the attention is on the church and the apostles. The rumor mill in Jerusalem is not talking about the Sadducees and the high priests and the Pharisees. Who are they talking about? Peter and the apostles and the church. And Luke reports that this shift in attention and popularity, it causes jealousy in them. What happens when you get jealous? Like, like what, what goes on in your mind and in your heart when you get jealous? What do you want to do so badly? You want to get rid of the thing or the person that makes you jealous, right? You want things to change. You don't want to be jealous. You are. And in the high priests and the Sadducees, they're becoming more and more jealous because the attention is no longer on them, but on the church. And the church becomes this major threat to them and their reputation. People will see soon enough, and they know it, that they don't need a high priest or the religious elite to lead them anymore. The apostles are preaching that this guy named Jesus, he's their high priest, that he can follow them now. And what, is, what goes on in these religious leaders? They're jealous. This means that if we don't take care of this, we may become completely irrelevant for the people we lead. And so the jealousy level of the religious elite rises to the level that they grab the apostles, all 12 of them, and they throw them in jail. I mean, this is like, it's almost like I have this image, like, what do we do? I know, throw them in jail, right? Like, that's, we could stop them there. They can't go anywhere. We'll just put them in jail, and then we'll deal with them. There's no grounds for arresting them, but we're going to do it anyway. They don't really, you know, they don't really know what they're doing. They just clearly need to find a way to stop these apostles from gaining the attention of the population so that they could try to contain them and get them to stop and that the attention can go back on what they have built in and around the temple. It just doesn't work for them. Verse 19. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out. And he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple. Now they're not outside the temple. Now they're inside the temple. And as they were told, as they were told, and they immediately begin teaching. On Wednesday nights, 
Uh, it just stopped because we only do it through the school year. We have AMP for our teenagers, 6th grade through 12th grade. And uh, AMP nights are usually uh, a lot of fun. I've been hanging with, out with them this last semester on Wednesday nights and our youth pastor, DJ, and the other leaders. And uh, usually on Wednesday nights, um, sometimes we eat if there's food and kind of talk and get going. But then DJ leads us through a game. He kind of gets everybody's energy out. We have a lot of fun. Mike Gustafson is the game king. If you don't know that, do not play games against Mike Gustafson. He will hurt you. Yeah, he is insane. Uh, and he is fast. For I mean, he is really fast. You know what I'm talking about, Mike. He's really, really fast. But anyway, these games are a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun. And they usually um, have a lot of energy, a lot of activity. And they have, uh, they're, most of them are like versions of tag or dodgeball. And so, um, yeah, right? We get to throw balls at each other. Every teenager loves to do that, right? And so we play these games. And, and you know, tag and, and dodgeball, all the games that kind of have the same versions, they all work the same. If you get tagged, you're out, or you have to go to jail, or you have to stay in one spot. If you get hit by the ball, you have to stay in one spot, or you go to jail, or you're out, right? And the only way you can get back in the game is how? You guys don't play these games. The teenagers know. One of your teammates has to go and get you, either out of jail, they got to tag you, they got to bring you back. Somehow, you've got to be saved by one of your teenagers, or, or one of your friends, right? And so this is what comes to mind for me in these verses. I know that's silly, it's like the apostles are caught up in some spiritual game of dodgeball, right? They play the game, they get tagged out, they get thrown in jail, and then someone on their team, in this case an angel, comes to free them so they can go and play the game again. And it just keeps happening. And we'll see as we go through the book of Acts, it just keeps happening. They play the game, they get thrown in jail, they get tagged in, they go play the game again. And they're just not giving up on this game, right? And so, of course... It's, you know, this is just back and forth. They, they, they don't really ever get true freedom because it's always short-lived. Look at verse 21. It says this, when the high priest and the officials arrived, they convened the high council. Now look, they don't know they're out of jail yet. They're just getting together to figure out what are we going to do now? These guys are in jail and we got to figure out what we're going to do with them. So they get together, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Then they sent for the apostles to be brought from the jail for trial. But when the temple guards went to the jail, the men were gone. So they returned to the council and reported, um, the jail was securely locked. We know that. We double-checked it, triple-checked it. There were guards standing outside. But when we opened the gates, no one was there. Verse 24, when the captain of the temple guard and the leading priest heard this, they were perplexed. Hmm wondering where it would all end. Then someone arrived with startling news. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. You're all gathered here trying to figure out what they're to do with them, and they're back playing the game. They're in your temple teaching people about the thing you don't want to do. So verse 26, the captain went with his temple guards, and he arrested the apostles again, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. Look at their reputation is preceding them, right? Like, they're just sneaking around trying to arrest people because they don't know what to do. And the apostles, they seem content with this game of dodgeball they're in with the Sadducees. They just, whatever, we'll go teach for a while. You could throw us in jail. That's fine. Can you imagine the look on the faces of the high priest and high council when they get word 
that the apostles are no longer in the jail they threw them in the night before. Can you imagine their faces when word comes that they're not just not in jail, but they're actually in the temple teaching and preaching about Jesus again? This story is almost comical, isn't it? It's like this comedy of errors. No matter how hard they try, the religious leaders cannot keep tabs on or contain the apostles and their work. It's like, you ever try to hold a fish in your hands? You know? And like, no matter how hard you, you hold it, that sucker's going to flop around, and eventually, if you don't hold it tight enough, it's going to get away. This is what I imagine the Sadducees are trying to do with the apostles. No matter how hard they try to contain them, they just keep flopping around and getting away and going to the same place that they were before. So again, they go to the temple. Jeez, you know, like, let's go. We're going to throw you in jail again. Again, this is... You're going to see this happens again and again and again. The apostles are teaching about Jesus. They're performing miracles. and They're adding to the number of people in the church. And the religious leaders are just trying to contain them by threats and jail and beatings and torture. And we'll see even death. They're just trying whatever they can. But no matter what they try, nothing seems to stop or contain the church from fulfilling its mission to be witnesses to Jesus in the world. I want you to just sit with that for a second and think about why. Why? Why doesn't anything seem to contain these guys? I mean, they're being threatened with jail. We're going to see they're going to get flogged. They're going to get beaten. Some are going to die. What is it about them? What do they know that is causing them to just play this game with very little fear and with a lot of freedom? You know, notice that Luke doesn't say, and they went to jail kicking and screaming. He just says, no, they just threw him in jail. The apostles seem very content about the whole situation. What is it about them? What do they know that is causing them such peace in the midst of all of this chaos. And why is it that no matter how hard the religious leaders try, they cannot contain them? Well, as I studied this passage, it, it dawned on me that these apostles, these first leaders of the church, knew something and understood it really, really well. You see, the apostles knew this truth. God's sovereignty cannot be contained. God's sovereignty, it, it can't be contained. You can try, but God's going to do what God's going to do. Just the way it is. You know what, the apostles, they're okay with that. God's sovereignty, it will not, it cannot be contained. Now, that word, sovereignty, is not a word we use very often in our world. We don't use kingdom language in our 21st century America today. So I just want to explain what that word means. It's a theological word that we use in the church often, the word sovereignty. And it's attached to a part of who God is, a very, very important part of who God is. And that word sovereign means to possess supreme and ultimate power. So in a kingdom, like an earthly kingdom, 
right? It's a word that's used to describe the king or the queen and their rule and reign over their constituents or their country. And so in God's kingdom, which we talk about, Jesus talks about a lot, it refers to God's supreme and ultimate rule and reign over his creation. He's sovereign, not just over some or something, but over all. Look at what it says in Colossians chapter 1. It says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is, what's the word? Supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on the earth. He made the things we can't see and the things we cannot see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. In other words, God, through Jesus, is totally and completely sovereign, in control, supreme power, ultimate control over us and the world we live in. Now, here's the thing. From our vantage point, things may seem messy and out of control at times, and they are. But God, the Bible says, is still sovereign. He's still, that doesn't change anything. It doesn't say in Colossians chapter 1 that he's supreme except for when these things happen. Then he's no longer sovereign. When you get thrown into jail for talking about Jesus, he's no longer sovereign. Then No, he's sovereign at all times and all places. When I was a kid, we used to sing this song. You want me to sing it? You know this song. Some of you know it. It goes like this. He's got the whole world. In his hand. Come on. Got the whole world in his hand. More. Got the whole world in his hand. He's got the whole world in his hand. That's right. I'm dancing. Come on. You got you and me, a brother, in his hand. He's got you and me, sister, in his hand. He's got you and me, brother, in his hand. He's got the whole world in his... You know this song? Yeah, good job. Give yourselves a hand. The six of you that sang, well done, well done. Look, that song, I mean, we sang that as a kid. Right? We got into it. We had emotions, the whole thing. It's, it's a song about the sovereignty of God. He, it, it's a song that recognizes he's supreme. He is ultimate control and power over all things. He's got the whole world in his hand. Now listen, unlike the sovereignty of earthly kings and queens, God's sovereignty in his kingdom is always for the benefit of his people and his creation. Right? Earthly kings and queens, they, they'll use and they'll abuse their sovereignty at the expense of their people, but not God. The story of the Bible from start to finish is the story of God's sovereignty that is always, always good, even when things look bad. The apostles are in and out of jail. Their lives are being threatened. They're constantly facing torture and death, and yet they keep playing the game. Why? Because they know God's sovereignty cannot be contained. God's going to do what God's going to do. I'm just glad to be a part of it. I get to be a part of what God's doing you see, they knew the truth of verses like Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. 
which that tells about the goodness and nature of God's sovereignty. This is how Isaiah talks about it. He says, remember the things I've done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. So let's just remember God's sovereignty for a minute, shall we? Faced with uncertain circumstances, God exhibits the goodness of his supreme power and control over and over again. Look at in Exodus 14. Moses is leading hundreds and thousands, millions possibly of Jews out of Egypt, escaping the horrible sovereignty of the Pharaoh in Egypt. And they've been slaves under his rule for hundreds and hundreds of years when God calls Moses a murderer to lead them out of Egypt and into his promised land. And as they're being chased by the Egyptians out of Egypt, Moses and the masses come to the edge of the Red Sea. There's no way to cross. They're doomed to go back to Egypt and become slaves again. Only God's sovereignty can't be contained. God going to do what God going to do. The Red Sea splits. The Jews walk to the other side, and the Egyptian army is swallowed up by the sea. In Daniel 6, Daniel and his friends are thrown into a den filled with lions for not honoring and worshiping the sovereignty of Nebuchadnezzar. Only God's sovereignty can't be contained, and Daniel and his friends come out of the den unscathed. In Matthew 27, Jesus, the very Son of God, hangs on a cross and breathes his last breath. The religious leaders believe they've finally done it. They've contained him. They've taken care of it. Only three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. Why? Because God's sovereignty cannot be contained in Acts chapter 5. The apostles are teaching and performing miracles, and they're thrown into jail because of the jealousy of the religious leaders. And what happens? God just goes, uh-uh. And he sends his buddy to open up the gate and let him go back to the temple and preach. Why? Because God's sovereignty cannot be contained. As I was studying for this passage, I came across this verse in Psalm 135. It says, the Lord does whatever he pleases him throughout all heaven and earth and on the seas and in their depths. Now, I know, look, I, sometimes I read that, I'm like, geez, what a narcissist, right? Like, okay, God, you can just do whatever you want to do. But here's the thing. If you pair that with verses like Ephesians 2.10 and Romans 8.28, you got something amazing about the sovereignty of God. Let me just read it. Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. What does God want to do? What does he wish to do? Ephesians 2.10. How about Romans 8.28? says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. It's true. God is going to do whatever pleases him, but not apart from the rest of his character, which is loving and gracious and kind and is for his people and for his mission. You can't contain God's sovereignty. You can try, you will fail miserably. But you need to know that if you call Jesus Lord, if you follow Jesus, 
that Romans 8.28 and Ephesians 2.10, you're God's masterpiece, that he is working together everything in your life and in the lives of those around you for his good and ultimate purposes. His sovereignty is at work in your life, and you cannot contain it. And you know what? That is such good news. Can you imagine if we tried to contain God's sovereignty? We'd have a world like it looks like right now. We would try to take things into our own hands, control them, make them ours, make them submit to us. And like we see, we just make a mess of it. When you pair Psalm 135 with those two passages, well, thank goodness God does whatever he pleases. Because whatever he pleases involves good things for us and the world around us, even when it seems bleak and chaotic and out of control, the sovereignty of God cannot, will not be contained. He will continue to cause everything to work together for good. It's just, not just what he does, it's who he is. Out of his deep love for his creation and for his people and for the the people of this world who don't even know him yet, God rules and reigns with benevolence and compassion, which should come as very good news to us, that he's in control, that we can release control and allow him to just use us in this game of dodgeball that he's placed us in. The world we live in, it is tattered and it is torn. And the last couple of weeks have shown that that is true in incomprehensible ways. But God's sovereignty still remains and it will not be contained. I'll just take a deep breath. Now look, this is not a call to passivity. That's not what I'm talking about. The apostles knew they were in the game. God's sovereign. He's calling us to something. He's calling us to be people who live in the sovereignty of his rule in our lives. It's not a call to passivity. Instead, it's a call to deep trust in the fact that God is not going to change, but that he has the whole world in his hands. You know, I mentioned it earlier, the apostles were arrested and placed in jail, and they weren't pleading to be set free, and they didn't try to fight their way out. It doesn't say that they apologized for what they were doing and speaking in the, speaking in the name of Jesus. And you know why? Because they had this deep trust in the sovereignty of God in the midst of uncertain circumstances, they were at peace. Whatever may come, because they knew God's sovereignty is going to have its way. I just want to be part of it. What a joy and a pleasure to be part of it. In fact, what I love about the apostles and those first leaders, look, they didn't have a manual. They didn't have book, the book of Acts we talked about. They were just writing it. They were making it up as they went. But they didn't just know Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. They lived it. They remembered what God had done in the past, and they lived knowing he's going to do it again. Exodus, Daniel, Jesus, God is just going to do it again. His sovereignty, his rule, his reign, his supreme power cannot be contained. It cannot be contained. Earlier I said I wanted your view of God to expand. Is it expanding? I want you to see and know the sovereignty of God in a way that changes how you think and how 
you live. Because do you know what happens when we don't trust that God's sovereignty can't be contained? Do you know what happens when we stop trusting God's sovereignty and we try to become sovereign over the things in our world? Do you know what happens? We become filled with stress and anxiety. The greatest source of your stress and anxiety is not because of your circumstances, but because of your lack of trust in God's sovereignty. When we stop living under the truth that God will do as he wishes and that it will always be what's best for us, our stress and our anxiety levels go through the roof. And look, I'm not sure what you're stressing about these days. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your finances, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your wayward son or daughter, maybe it's your future plans. I don't know what it is. Whatever it is, I want to point you to the absolute trust that the apostles had in the sovereignty of God this morning. They serve as an example for us as to what our lives can be and do in this world when we stop trying to be sovereign over everything ourselves and allow God to be sovereign in and through our lives. Because here's the thing, God's sovereignty cannot be contained. This week, I want that thing to annoy you, that God's sovereignty cannot be contained, and that you, because of the truths that are in the Scriptures, Romans 8, 28, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Psalm 135, Isaiah 46, that you are in good hands. That God's sovereignty is good. It is for you. It wants to take who you are and what you are and use you to play this game that he is in, this spiritual battle that we're in, that the world might know that he still has the whole world in his hands. You know what? He's done it before and he's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. He's going to reveal himself. He's going to be sovereign again. So can we all just take a breath for a second? Take a breath to know that you're in good hands. You're in good hands. You're in God's hands. You know what? It was true when I was five. It's true when I'm 43. It'll be true when I'm dead but he's still got the whole world in his hands. And we have the ability, the calling, the challenge this morning to trust that. To fully trust that. And not just like in a passive manner, but to live in that truth. To live as though God is sovereign and it won't be contained. And what he's done in the past, man, it's going to come again. Breakthrough is going to happen. He is going to have his way and it will be good. We trust that this morning. Will you put your faith there? Nowhere else, but there. In the rule and the reign of the good, loving, compassionate, gracious, merciful God who sent Jesus Christ to die for us, to give us freedom from our sins, to raise again three days later so that we could have new life, so that we, like the apostles, could be invited into this game that we play called life, where we become the witnesses of God in our world, displaying what it looks like to trust who he is and the sovereignty that he possesses. Will you invite, be invited into that this morning? Will you receive that invitation 
this morning? Will you walk out of here with an expanded view of God that He is sovereign and it will not be contained? And you can try and your friends can try and your neighbors can try, but He will not be contained. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the truth of these words this morning. We thank You for the example of the apostles. We thank You for the example and life of Jesus who in Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16, it says that he is the visible image of who you are, that he is supreme over all things, that he is the one who holds all things together, and that when we are in him, that when our faith is in him, that, that your sovereignty rules in our lives. You begin to work together all things for good in the midst of the chaos and the circumstances that you call us your masterpiece. You begin to do good things in and through us. As our trust grows deeper in who you are and the sovereignty of your control over this world, God, that you begin to do new and more courageous things in and through our life. Thank you for the story of that first church, for their bravery, for their courage, for their trust, for their peace. May we get a taste of that this week. May our view of you be expand in a way that we haven't allowed it before. We pray all this in Jesus' name.